Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace and for the truth and for your, your plan of salvation that you implemented right there in Eden, and, and you have been working through human history to bring to its conclusion. And, and we, where we stand in the stream of time, uh, as, as we deal with the, the, the pains and sufferings and losses of life, we so long for your, your kingdom and for the end to come. And we ask that you will enlighten our minds as we study. We can be effective to be your agents at this time in history, to evangelize the world for your soon return. Comfort the families that are grieving, and may we see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we are doing lesson four in the, in the quarterly Ephesians, and the title this week is How God Rescues Us. And the memory verse is from Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, and they quote from the English Standard Version, which reads, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the lesson starts, after the, after the Bible text, the lesson starts um, by recalling the rescue. Some of you, as old as I am, may remember the rescue of 18-month-old Jessica McClure back in 1987, who fell in an eight-inch well. Remember that? It, it, the whole world watched for two days as they piped air down to this child who was stuck down in this eight-inch well, and eventually they rescued her. And the lesson goes on to say, after the, the recounting of this thrilling and exciting rescue, it reads the following. There's nothing quite as gripping as a good rescue story. And Paul, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, gives us a clo- an up-close and personal view of the grandest, most sweeping rescue mission of all time. God's efforts to redeem humanity. The drama of the story is heightened by knowing that we are not mere spectators of someone else's rescue, but witnesses of our own. As you read that, did you go, did any questions pop into your mind? And by the way, there's Chip right here, so we can thank him later for his service of nine years. Uh, you all be sure and thank him when, when the class is over for all that he's done as our treasurer. We appreciate that, Chip. So do, you, do any questions come in mind? Do you say, yes, this is true, God's rescuing us, but wait a minute, from what is he rescuing us? Have you ever thought that? What? Or does it, you automatically, well, I know. Uh, he's rescuing us from sin. He's rescuing us from death. He's rescuing us from Satan. He's rescuing us from our carnal nature. Do you ever think, though, that Jesus is rescuing us from the just punishment God must inflict upon sinners for sin? Or have you ever thought that Jesus had paid, has paid our legal penalty in order to rescue us from the legal condemnation and God's eternal punishment that a just God must inflict? Understand this very clearly. Rescuing us from sin and rescuing us from inflicted punishment for sin are not the same thing. These two ideas may sound similar, but they're not. See, rescuing somebody from who's dying from metastatic cancer and putting the cancer into remission, you rescue them from, from, from death by rescuing them from the cancer that's killing them is not the same thing as saying we're rescuing somebody from a doctor who's going to kill them because they have metastatic cancer. That is not the same thing. 30 years ago, this year, my father died unexpectedly at age 57. And in my grieving through that process of loss, it brought home to me very clearly how dissatisfied I am with the things of this world. 
how my heart longs as the writer of Hebrews for a better country, a heavenly one, where there's no more sickness, pain, and death. And I realized in my working through that when Jesus comes again, we will be able to be with our loved ones, our past and lost loved ones again, those who've passed away. And I read texts in the Bible where Peter said that, that we have the option to hasten the day of the Lord. And Jesus himself said, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. I wanted that to happen. It's one of the reasons why I founded this ministry. I wanted to hasten the day. I want Jesus to come. I want him to come in our lifetimes. And I wondered, well, why hadn't Jesus come? Certainly the whole world, really the whole world, every nation has had the, the message of the Bible and Jesus presented to them. I rejected the theory that, that there was some hermit in some cave in some isolated part of the world that had never heard of Jesus. And if we could just find that one hermit and tell them about Jesus and Jesus would come. I reject that theory. Some people hold to that. There's just one person out there. We've got to find them. No. Instead, I examined the history of Christianity since Jesus ascended, and I realized something changed from how Jesus presented the gospel to how the church presented the gospel. If you just do a little historical review of what Jesus presented the gospel to be and what the church historically has presented, you will find they're not the same. I came to the conclusion that the reason Jesus hasn't come is because a counterfeit Christianity dominates the world. Rather than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's waiting for a people to take the true gospel to Jesus Christ. And this week, as I have been preparing for Ralph's memorial, it brought back home to me this dissatisfaction of the world and longing for a better world. And it reconvicted me of the need to be effective in presenting the gospel to lighten the world so that we might see Jesus coming. We need to have a clear and true message of what that gospel is. And so I want you to understand my motives this morning as I present what I'm going to present to you. My motives, and and it's based on, on this idea of rescuing us. From what? My motives are not to win an argument or to prove one church right and one church wrong or to win a theological debate, my motives are, are, are straightforward. Hasten the day of the Lord to get out of this world. That's, that's my goal. So consider what, what I present in this light, under, under the motivation of why I'm doing it. Consider it in that light. And, and ask yourself as I'm presenting it, do you believe this has any merit uh, if, if we were to present this message, if the church were to present it in this way? Do you believe it has any merit in helping to hasten the day or not? If you do disagree and think, no, that's not really the message, then please come to me with the biblical and inspired evidence of of a better way to present it, because I really, my motive is not to win an argument or to prove what I'm saying is right. My motive is to present the message in a way that will hasten the day. And if you have evidence that's a better way, I want that evidence because I want to present it even better. But if you do agree with me, you say, wow, yeah. This is, this, is, this is the best message that I've heard thus far as the truth is unfolding, and I think this is what needs to go to the world, then I'd ask you to join Come and Reason Ministry and begin sharing this message in your community, with your family, with your church, so that we can hasten the day.
So what is, from what is Jesus rescuing us? Sin itself? The sin condition? Sinfulness? The carnal nature? Or is Jesus' rescue mission to rescue us from the wrath, from the legal imposed penalty of a righteous God who in his anger must kill us? Is any of the following, which are commonly taught in Christianity, things that you believe? God is a righteous judge whose holiness requires that he accurately judge sinners and that in order to maintain his justice, he must enforce his law. Therefore, God in justice must inflict the penalty of death upon sinners. God must for all who refuse his salvation, use his power to do his strange act of killing unrepentant sinners so that his law can be maintained and justice can be served. But God loves us, and rather than immediately punish sinners with his just death penalty that we deserve, God sent his son. And even though his son is totally innocent, God laid upon Jesus the sins of all human sinners and then punished Jesus by executing him in our place in order to satisfy the demands for justice and to maintain the integrity of the law. Because of the sacrifice of innocent Jesus, God now proclaims that he can accept the legal payment of Jesus' blood into our heavenly account for all who claim it, and he will then declare them to be legally righteous, even though in reality they remain unrighteous. Have you ever been taught anything like that? Have you ever heard anything like that? Do you think I made that up? I did not make any of that up. That is common penal substitution theology. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, do you believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was called into existence to take a special end-time message to the world that is intended to prepare the world for Christ's return? Do you believe that? Yes. What if I could demonstrate to you from both Scripture and the historical SDA documents that as long as we present matters in the way, the legal way that I just read to you, I can present it to you from historical documents and Scripture, that if we do it that way, we are failing to take our special mission to the world. We are delaying the coming of Christ rather than hastening it. First, though, let me be clear to any of our listeners who may not be familiar with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, when I talk about a special mission or calling of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a God-given mission, I want you to understand that mission, as I understand it, is not sectarianism. Its special God-blessed message is not the following. You must join the SDA denomination because salvation is only found by membership in the SDA church. That is not the message. Such religious narcissism is what the Jews 2,000 years ago fell into. The Israelites had been blessed with a special message to prepare the world for the first advent of the Messiah. But they misconstrued it and thought they had exclusive rights to salvation and you had to join their organization to experience salvation. But remember, in Old Testament times, Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, the wise men from the east who brought gifts to Jesus, none of these were Jewish people. Jethro, others, righteous people, 
you didn't have to join the Jewish nation to experience salvation, but you had to join the Jewish nation if you wanted to be part of that mission. That was the mission. They had a mission. If we hold to any idea of exclusive license to salvation with this organization, we are missing our mission. Sadly, I know many people believe it's the mission to to go out and evangelize the world and make them members of the organization. That's not the mission. The mission is to evangelize the world, to prepare the hearts and minds of people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or just to get them to accept the Sabbath. (laughs) The message we've been given is found in the three angels, and it is a message to call people to worship God as creator, as the builder of reality to stop worshiping the legal, fictional, dictator God that comes out of Romanization, Romanization of Christianity. When Rome and Roman imperial law replaced God's creatorship or design law in the church, and which misrepresents God's government as functioning like human governments. Impose laws that require imposing punishments upon lawbreakers. So the critical question that the entire war in heaven and on earth, the entire great controversy centers upon, is how do we understand God's law functions? And I'm going to show you this to you from the the record. Whatever you decide to believe on that question determines how you understand God's character functions. If we believe God's law functions like human law, system of made-up rules, If that's how it functions, that's your belief, then justice requires a righteous lawgiver to police and properly uh, enforce such a law. And therefore, God then becomes the righteous judge and the one who inflicts penalty to punish rule breakers because your base belief is that's how the law functions. So that's how he's just. He has to do it. it. It completely contaminates how you see his character. However, if you return to worshiping the creator and realize that the creator builds reality. He, build, he, he, he speaks into existence reality, space, time, energy, life, matter. He creates it. And the laws of the creator are the protocols upon which reality itself function, including not just the physical laws, but the laws that life functions, relationships. These are protocols that, that reality are built upon. When you understand that, then instead of seeing God as an enforcer and the source of inflicted death, you see God as the healer and the restorer and the redeemer, the one who's working to put us back in harmony with life. When we return to creator worship, we realize that the only possible outcome from sin without divine intervention is ruin and death. Death comes out from sin, not from God. This is scripture now. The wages of sin is death. Is that the same thing as saying the punishment of God for sin is death? No. How about, that's Romans 6.23. How about James 1.15? Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. is what Scripture said. Is that the same thing as saying sin, when full grown, brings forth the wrath of God who must kill you for it? No. It's not the same. Or Galatians 6.8. This is a quote. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Is that the same thing as saying if you sow to the carnal nature, you reap the wrath of God who destroys you for it? No. It's not the same. Understand, there are two versions of the sin problem 
the plan of salvation, the gospel, and when the true gospel goes to the world, the end comes. Another, and what's happened is that the whole world drinks this wine of Romanization and falsely assumes that God's law works like human law, and there we teach into all of our doctrines and systems this idea of legal execution and justice. Now I'm going to use the writings of Ellen White as historical documentation for the message of the Adventist church, what the Adventist church founders were to take to the world, what the Adventist church mission was understood to be by the founders and how we were to present it to the world. I'm going to use her writings as a historical source to demonstrate that I'm not making this up. Now, you can disagree or not agree. Some believe it's an inspired source, some don't. It's irrespective of whether you believe it's an inspired source. It's a historical source. It's showing what the, what the people of the founders of the Adventist church thought. And I'm going to make the case very clearly that if you have the wrong view of God's law, you can have the right doctrines with the wrong God and the wrong setting, and you end up with the right Sabbath crucifying the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. So we will start by doing this first quote out of Great Controversy, the introduction, which was written by Ellen White. Notice the, uh, the uh, setting here, the book, The Great Controversy. Through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the scenes of long, the long-continued conflict between good and evil have been opened to the writers of, this, of these pages. From time to time, I have been permitted to behold the working in different ages of the great controversy between Christ, the Prince of Life, and the, uh, the author of Our Salvation, and Satan, the prince of evil, the author of sin, the first transgressor of God's holy law. Setting up a contrast, author of life versus the author of sin, okay, they're on opposite sides here. Satan's enmity against Christ has been manifest against his followers. The same hatred of the principles of God's law, the same policy of deception by which error is made to appear as truth, by which human laws are substituted for the law of God. And men are led to worship the creature rather than the creator. Why? If you worship a God who makes up laws like human beings, that's a creature. Creatures can't create reality. We make up rules. So if your God is a rule maker who enforces them, you're worshiping a creature. If your God makes up the laws, reality is made, you're worshiping the creator. So we worship the creature rather than the creator. May be traced in all the history of the past. Satan's efforts to misrepresent the character of God, to cause men to cherish false conceptions of the creator, and thus to regard him with fear and hate rather than with love, his endeavors to set aside the divine law. This is how, again, the root. If you accept the idea that God's law is Roman, you then worship him out of fear. And I'm going to unpack this for you. Much of Christianity, the theology of salvation, is to do something to God to protect you from him. Pay him, appease him, mediate him, assuage him, propitiate him, hide you from him, cover you so he doesn't see it. Why? Because you're afraid of him. Why? Because you believe he must punish. Why? Because you believe his law works like Rome. Pagan. It's pagan. That's exactly what it is. It's pagan. And this, uh, the author here goes on to say, this may be traced in the history of patriarchs, prophets, the apostles, and the martyrs and the reformers. And then this is out of uh, later in the same book, Great Controversy 582. The last great conflict 
This is where we would see ourselves at the end of time right before Christ comes. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. What's another word for fable? Fantasy, Fantasy, myth, non-reality. God's law builds reality. The laws reality operate upon. That's God's law. Imposed human law, made up rules, and then say that's how God does things. Fantasy, fable, non-reality. What kinds of, yeah, so so created beings cannot... um, build reality. So we just make up rules, we call them laws, and then we enforce them. And then this whole idea, it's deeply embedded, folks. Talk to people who, who don't agree with what we teach here. You will find every time they all believe God's law works like human law and justice requires God to have a judicial process, examine records, make up a conclusion, a judgment, and then inflict punishment in, 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 in for proper, for proper unpaid-for uh, sins. In John 13... Jesus was given all power, the scripture says. All power was given unto him. And what did he do with the power? Immediately when he got the power, he did something. He got up and did something. Served. He washed dirty feet. Twelve pairs of dirty feet. Now, is there an object lesson in washing dirty feet in that context? Is there an object lesson there? What's the object? What is Christ acting out by doing this? Not just serving. He's washing dirty feet. He's cleansing from sin. He's cleansing. That's what the the dirt on the feet symbolizes, the sins that we, we get. And the washing is the washing of the Holy Spirit to cleanse from sin. As soon as Christ got power, he did not have a tribunal. He didn't lord over. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He didn't go to physical war. He cleansed from sin. That's what he did. Now, notice the historical record again, what the Adventist church is supposed to teach regarding Satan's position on God's law from the beginning of his war in heaven. This is what the Adventist church is supposed to be telling the world. This is out of Zyre of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy... Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. The historical Adventist message was supposed to teach that it is Satan's position that God's law requires inflicted punishment. We're supposed to be teaching it. Hey, if you, if you are teaching that God and justice has to punish sinners, that's the historic Adventist message. That's Satan's view. This was in heaven. This was in heaven. Yes. This is what this is describing the opening in heaven. But instead, the church accepted Satan's view as true that God's law does require God to punish, and they call it justice. Accepting Satan's lie results in having right doctrines, state of the dead, Sabbath, so forth, and presenting them in a false setting that makes God out to be the one from whom we need protection. There is a form of punishment God does do, I believe, and that is an educational punishment. Through the Old Testament, he's always saying, I did this, and you still didn't learn. I did this, and you still didn't learn. So, so we call that discipline. Discipline comes from the root disciple. It means to teach or to educate. Punishment comes from the root punitive. It means take vengeance upon. So he disciplines those he loved, the Bible says, but that's not punishment. 
Next, next quote is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 42. Most of the quotes, I'm going to be really standard stuff, not, not hidden stuff. Big, you know, published books and works of, of, the, of the church, of, of, the, of the founders. God could employ only such methods as were consistent with truth and righteousness. Satan can use what God could not, flattery and deceit. He had sought to falsify the word of God and had misrepresented his plan of government. Think that through. How do you misrepresent a plan of government? How do you govern? By misrepresenting the laws of that government. Continuing on. Claiming that God was not just, notice here, here's the claim. Here's the, God is not just in imposing laws upon the angels. Imposing laws upon the angels. That in requiring submission and obedience from his creatures, he was seeking merely to the exaltation of himself. It was therefore necessary to demonstrate before the inhabitants of heaven and all the worlds that God's government is just, his law perfect. Satan had made it appear that he himself was seeking to promote the good of the universe, the true character of the usurper, and his real object must be understood by all. He must have time to manifest himself by his wicked works. Now, some might argue that the way this is worded, that Satan claiming that God was not just in imposing laws upon angels, that's how how it was worded, means that God is just in imposing. The claim is God is unjust in imposing laws, therefore God must be just in imposing laws. This is how subtle Satan is. It's a double lie. This is a double lie. It's not a single lie. It's a double lie. Consider someone saying, John is not just in beating his wife. And you know for a fact John is very just. You are convinced without question that John is always just. And someone makes the claim he is not just in beating his wife. Then you go, well, we're going to defend his justice. Yes, John is just for beating his wife. So you have to say, where's the lie here? Is the lie, well, God is unjust. No, we know God is just. No, we're going to reject the lie of an unjust God. Then is the lie, then the embedded accusation of imposed laws. And so what happens when people read this stuff, they go, oh no, we know God's just. And Satan said he's unjust to impose laws. Therefore, we're going to reject the the, uh, unjustice of God uh, and, and claim his justice by teaching that he imposes laws, which means now we're teaching Satan's version of God. It's like, I'm going to teach John as a very just husband because I'm going to teach he, he beats his wife because, because the allegation is he's unjust in beating his wife. Well, what's the real lie? John, John never beat his wife in the first place. God never imposed laws in the first place. That's the real lie. So we reject the lie that God is not just. We also reject the lie, the embedded lie that God imposes laws. So from the historical Adventist record, to prove my point of what the Adventist church was supposed to be and is supposed to be teaching about this, this is from Thoughts of Mount of Blessing 109. But in heaven, the service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There, there is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience is to them no drudgery. Love for God makes their service a joy. So in every soul where, Christ, where, where in Christ the hope of glory dwells, his words are re-echoed. I delight to do thy will, O my God. So what kind of law can be in operation and beings are actually living in harmony with it, but they haven't been informed about it or thought of it? Think that through. There's a law, you're living in harmony with it, but you haven't even thought of it. 
think about, I give this example before, but Isaac Newton finally discovers the law of gravity and he's all excited and he goes and tells all his friends about the law of gravity and gives them an equation and shows them and explains how it works. Can't you see his friends going, huh, there's a law about gravity? Huh, I never thought about that. It's just how things work. <laughs> That's the kind of law that people live in harmony with that they never thought of. Design law, how reality works. These are God's laws in heaven. Satan's position is that God is arbitrary. His law is nothing more than made-up rules like created beings work, uh, make up. And that, that automatically will make God into the legal enforcer. Here's another historical quote, again making the case of what was supposed to go to the world. Now this one is out of a manuscript release 41, in, written in 1892. Many conceive of the Christian's God as a being whose attribute is stern justice, one who is a severe judge, a harsh, exacting creditor. The creator has been pictured as a being who is watching with jealous eye to discern the errors and mistakes of men, that he may visit judgment upon them. In the minds of thousands, love and sympathy and tenderness are associated with the character of Christ, while God is regarded as the lawgiver, inflexible, arbitrary, devoid of sympathy for his being, the beings he has made. Never was there a greater error. Nature and revel- notice nature. What kind of laws nature operate on? Design law. Nature and revelation alike testify of God's love. It is from Him that we receive every good gift. He is the source of life, of wisdom, of joy. Look at the wonderful and beautiful things of nature. Think of their marvelous adaptation to the needs and happy and happiness not only of man but all living creatures. Remember the law of love, how it is built into nature, and all living systems have to give in order to live. And you must give away carbon dioxide and receive oxygen back from the plants. The law of love built into nature. It's a design law. And if you transgress that and put a plastic bag over your head, you transgress the law. And the wages of that is death, okay? This is, this is what she's describing, design law, how reality works. And then we'll go to Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast a shadow across the earth that men might lose the true view of God's character and that the knowledge of God might be become extinct in the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. What's the word arbitrary mean? Made up. up. Using power to make it be so. Uh, A speed limit of 35 is an arbitrary. It could be 36, it could be 34, it could be 32, it could be 41. It's arbitrary. It's made up. Made up rules like humans. God is arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of the earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was the living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way in which he could set and keep men right, set right, by the way, is In Latin, if you use a Latin-based word, justification. Keep right, sanctification. The only way he could justify and sanctify, the only way he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became partaker of his nature. Jesus, the word made flesh, God in humanity, revealed the truth about God. He governed For three and a half years, when during his ministry, he showed you how he governs, how he leads, how he deals with with people who want to hurt him. 
how he would deal with people who would beat him and crucify him and spit on him and how he wields power. And if you could walk into heaven and spit on God and put a crown of thorns on his head and nail him to a cross, you know what he would say? I forgive you. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the the Father. The Father and I are one. The New Testament church practiced the principles of God's living law of love as taught by Jesus and the apostles, and they did not seek political power to get new senators elected in Rome or new governors in Palestine. They didn't seek that. They didn't seek to go to physical war. Jesus actually said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. They didn't do that. They actually fought with the wep- not the weapons of the world, but divine weapons that demolish strongholds, demolish fear, demolish selfishness, demolish guilt, demolish lies, transform hearts, free hearts and minds. This is what they did. And the gospel, while they're being persecuted and loving and forgiving their enemies, spreads throughout the Roman Empire. And Satan changes his strategy. His first strategy, let's kill them all. It didn't work. Can't kill them all. The more we kill, the more the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God is transforming hearts. So instead, Satan changes his tactics and infects the Christian church with Romanism, the idea that God's law works like human law. This is now a quote from Eusebius, Eusebius, the first Christian, Christian, Christian historian. Notice what he wrote. With the Roman Empire monarchy had come on earth as the image of the monarchy in heaven. The first Christian historian that we have writing on Christian history says that the, that the Roman Empire monarchy, how they run with a Caesar running with imperial law and killing lawbreakers, that's an image of how God's kingdom runs in heaven. Here is another historical quote, Great Controversy, page 22. The great sin of the Jews was their rejection of Christ. The great sin of the Christian world would be their rejection of the law of God. The foundation of his government in heaven and earth. By accepting Roman law and rejecting design law, this is the great sin of the Christian world. We teach a Roman dictator God. The SDA church was specifically called into existence to call people back to worship the creator. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Stop worshiping an imperial dictator. Come out of the fallen systems of Babylon, imperial dictator persecuting systems. Notice again, historically, what the Adventist church was to teach about God's law. This is Prophets and Kings, page 625. There is no such thing as weakening or strengthening the law of Jehovah. As it has been, so it is. It always has been and always will be holy, just, and good, complete in itself. It cannot be repealed or changed. To honor or dishonor it is but the speech of men. Human law can be repealed and changed. Divine law upon which reality is built cannot be repealed and changed. The Roman church, in attempting to change God's law, reveals that it believes God's law functions like Roman law, a system of rules that are amenable to change. And no church, get your mind again around this, no church has ever voted to void or amend 
the law of gravity. Just think how of all those cathedrals the Roman church was building, how it would have been nice for their builders to, in this area for the next four hours, gravity would be half its normal uh, strength. We could move all these things up and down and build these cathedrals so much easier if gravity was less for our workers, right? All those who take the Holy Eucharist will have less uh, exertion because gravity is less. Why didn't the church vote to do that? Because they couldn't change design law. So what does it mean if a church, any church, votes to change God's law, except they don't see it as design law. They see it as Roman, available to be changed. And so when the Roman church deleted the second commandment about images, split the tenth into two, moved the fourth to the third, changed the day from Sunday to Sabbath, all these changes are the fruit, the evidence, the confirmation of the true change that brought to the entire world and all Protestant churches still accept God's law works like human law, system of rules requires him to punish rule breakers. That's the real change. All this other stuff we focus on are evidence, symptoms, or fruits of that change. Prophets and Kings 6.25, continuing the next paragraph. Between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle not between rival churches contending for the supremacy, but between the religion of the Bible and the religions of fable and tradition. How much of Adventist eschatology has been a setup between another rival church? That's not what this, the historic Adventism didn't take that position. It's between the law of God, design law, how reality works, and imperialism, Romanism, Regardless of what denomination you belong to, if you teach God's law works like human law and God is the ultimate cosmic enforcer, the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death, that's Romanism. It doesn't matter what denomination you belong to. This is from the Crest Collection. Just to show you what the historic Adventist church was supposed to teach about God's law. Crest Collection 46. The, The transgression of the physical law is the transgression of God's law. Our creator is Jesus Christ. He is the author of our being. He has created the human structure. He is the author of physical laws, and he is the author of the moral law. And the human being who is careless and reckless in the habits and practices that concern physical life and physical health, it sins against God. Careless and reckless. And the next is out of the book, Education. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom. What kind of laws guide those? Control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has jurisdiction of the soul. Now let's move to the spiritual. Same laws, same types of laws. From him, all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found our true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same, a life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe and to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. What kind of law is this? 
system of rules, you get in legal trouble, God's required to use power and authority to punish rule breakers, or is this how reality works? It's how life is built. In Wednesday's lesson, they quote from The Desire of Ages, page 19, and we're going to use that, but they stop one sentence. We're going to add one sentence into the quote they didn't, they didn't include. It says, by coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. But not alone for his earthborn children were these revelations given. Our little world is the lesson book to the universe. If you want a Bible text for that, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. We are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. That's a Bible verse. There's other Bible verses. God's wonderful purpose of grace, the mystery of redeeming love, is the theme into which angels desire to look. And it will be their study throughout endless ages. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross their science and their song. That's intellectually, science, facts, understanding, reality, intellectually, song, heart, spirit, love, what you, what you emotionally cling to and value, um, uh, intellectually and spiritually. We are going to be intellectually and spiritually sealed or settled into the truth about God. And it's all revealed in the cross. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of, of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. And that's where the quote stops in the quarterly. Notice the next sentence, which is the most crucial. In the light from Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven. Wow. This is the historic view. God's design law is the principle of love. And I gave you the example of respiration. We can do the water cycle. We can do every living system gives freely and receives back in order to live. And if you break that design, the, wa- the, the blood circulates in your body. And if you sever the, the, the uh, circulation... What happens? This is what was object lesson in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Leviticus 17, life is in the blood, and blood just circles, circles, circles. But if you cut the circulation, the system dies. You break the circle of life. This is all that God is teaching, design law. The mission of the SDA church is to evangelize the world for Christ's return by taking a special message of the three angels of Revelation 14 to the world. This special message only becomes the final special message of mercy when it's presented through design law. If you present it through imposed Roman law systems, it does not lighten the world for Christ's return. Now listen to this out of Testimonies to the Church, volume 3, page 161. Ellen White did not use the language design law. She used the language natural law. But notice what she writes here. Men and women cannot violate natural law by indulging depraved appetite and lustful passions and not violate the law of God. Therefore, he has permitted the light of health reform to shine upon us that we may see our sin in violating the laws which he has established in our beings. Notice that. When, when Congress passes a law, whatever that law is, tax law, property laws, trans, no, no trespassing laws, any law that they pass is not established in your being. It's external to you. God builds reality and his laws are established in the way we function and live established in our being. All our enjoyment or suffering may be traced to obedience or transgression of natural law. Our gracious Heavenly Father sees the deplorable condition of men who, some knowingly but many ignorantly, are living in violation of the laws that he has established, created, built reality upon. And in love and pity to the race, he causes the light to shine upon health reform. He publishes his law, and the penalty that will follow to transgression of it 
that all may learn and be careful to live in harmony with natural law. He proclaims his law so distinctly and makes it so prominent that it is like a city set on a hill. All accountable beings can understand if they will. To make plain natural law and urge the obedience of it is the work that accompanies the third angel's message to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. If we're not putting the third angel's message in the setting of design law, if we're presenting those messages through imposed Roman law with a punishing God, we are not presenting the message that prepares the world for Christ to come. We are not hastening the day. We're delaying it. Wow. And sadly, the SDA church failed. This message came most powerfully at the 1888 General Conference in Minneapolis. And leadership of the church rejected this message and, and instead chose imposed law with a punishing God. And the following is what Ellen White wrote of her assessment of the leadership at that meeting in the aftermath. This is what she wrote. This is out of the 1888 collection, 1478. But all the universe of heaven witnessed the disgraceful treatment of Jesus Christ represented by the Holy Spirit. Had Christ been before them, they would have treated him in a manner similar to that which the Jews treated Christ. That was our leadership in 1888 that she said that about. Why? Because they, just like the Jews, special message, right doctrines 2,000 years ago, they didn't crucify Jesus because he was teaching a different Sabbath, because he was teaching a different sanctuary, because he was teaching a different tie system, because he was teaching a different dietary system, because he was teaching a different Bible, because he was teaching a different way of creation. Uh, Six literal days creation, Jesus taught that the doctrines were the same. He set them in design law, not imperial law, not legal, not a punishing God, and they hated him. And they were afraid they would lose their power because this is the way the systems of the world works. The systems of the world incite fear and then use power to coerce people into compliance. She went on to write, and this is a letter, 1892. I tell you, God is testing us now, just now. The whole earth is to be lighted with the glory of God. That's the first angel's message. The whole world is lighted with his glory. The light is shining now. And how hard has it been for proud hearts to accept of Jesus as their personal Savior? How hard to get out of the rut of a legal religion? How hard for them to grasp the rich, free gift of Christ? Those who have not accepted this offering will not understand anything in regard to the light which fills the whole world with its glory. This is the leadership of our church, folks. If you reject design law and you bear down on Roman law, this author, the historical position is, this is division. There is the true gospel message of a creator God who builds reality, operate in harmony with his nature of love, and there is a Roman God who makes up rules and uses power to punish rule breakers, and and you call that, if you go down that trail, you're not actually understanding anything about the message that is to lighten the world for Christ's return. Amen. I see that. I'm going to give you some more historical documents here. Now, this comes from, I think I've made the case that the historical Adventist church was to present the law as design law. Now, I'm going to show you what, what is in the p- official publications 
of our church. And, and I'll let you decide if, if what, what you're going to see here, th- these are not my words, these are words out of various publications. You're going to see from the 27 Fundamental Beliefs book, you're going to see from the Review, you're going to see from Ministry Magazine, you're going to see from, a whole, uh, from our quarterlies, you're going to see from many official publications. And I want you to ask, do you see the same message here that all these historical references I've just given you? So the first is 27 Fundamental Beliefs, page 109. <laughs> The original transgression created in the human mind a disposition of enmity against God. Consequently, we deserve the displeasure of God, who is a consuming fire against sin. The solemn truth is that all have sinned, all are by nature children of wrath, and subject to death for the wages of sin is death. Divine wrath is what Scripture calls God's reaction to sin and unrighteousness. Deliberate rejection of God's revealed will, his law, provokes his righteous anger and wrath. G.E. Ladd wrote, men are ethically sinful, and when God counts their trespasses against them, he must view them as sinners and enemies, as objects of divine wrath, for it is an ethical and religious necessity that the holiness of God manifests itself in wrath against sin. This is uh, two pages later in the 27 Fundamental Beliefs, page 111. For a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness... The atoning death of Jesus Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus on the sinner. In this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. The atonement was necessary because sinners stood under the righteous wrath of God. Herein lies the heart of the gospel of forgiveness of sin and the mystery of the cross of Christ. Christ's perfect righteousness adequately satisfies divine justice, and God is willing to accept Christ's self-sacrifice in place of man's death. Remember Satan's lie from the beginning? Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. That was a quote from Desire of Ages, 761. Do you hear that same theology in this quote? God, if he remits the punishment, he's not just. He's not just. He has to punish. That's justice. That's Satan's theology. It infects our church. We wonder why so many people have left the church. <laughs> Continue on with the quote. Persons unwilling to accept the atoning blood of Christ receive no forgiveness of sin and are still, un- still subjects to God's wrath. Christ's self-sacrifice is pleasing to God. Now notice why this says it's pleasing to God. Because this self-sacrifice sacrificial offering took away the barrier between God and sinful man in that Christ fully bore God's wrath on man's sin. Through Christ, God's wrath is not turned into love, but is turned away from man and born by himself. So according to this, what's the barrier that stands between us and God? We can't be reconciled to God because there's something in the way. There's a barrier. There's something that's blocking us. We can't get there. What is it? Not our sinfulness, not our distrust, not our rebellion, not our disloyalty, not our carnality. No, that's not what's keeping us out of heaven. Oh, no, it's God's wrath and anger. He's got a problem. He needs some fixing. But, But the Bible actually says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the wrath of the Father. Is that what it says? No. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the sin that separates us from the Father. Next is out of Ministry Magazine. When did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Well, excuse me, why did God the Father choose the cross to be the instrument of death? Why didn't he, did, he, did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through by a spear or sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or lethal injection? 
<laughs> and they go on to make the case that he chose the cross because Christ had to be tortured for the proper amount of torture and torment because a, a beheading would be too merciful for the sin bearer and you have to punish sin and make them torment for it. This is out of the Adventist Review. One of the fundamental problems of the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save, it, uh, save us is considered a violation of justice. And then, I'll just read one of these. There's, there's another one. We'll just read one of them. This is the adult Sabbath suit quarterly. It says, the Hebrew wording in both Leviticus 9.24 and 10.2 is the same, and fire came out from, be- from before the Lord and consumed. Consumed what? In the first case, the offering, and in the other, sinners. What a powerful representation of the plan of salvation. At the cross, the fire from God, the wrath of God, consumed the offering, and that was Jesus. Do you understand the levels of denial and distortion you have to think through in order to come to this conclusion? When you actually look at the historical record of what Christ experienced at the cross, did you ever see fire coming down like Mount Carmel and consuming Jesus on the cross? Did you ever see God using any power against his son, or did his son give his own personal testimony? My God, my God, why are you tormenting me, torturing me, and killing me? Or why are you forsaking me? Why are you letting me go? The levels of distortion that you have to go through and mental manipulation to come to this conclusion, it shows how deeply infected the wrong law view is. Mm. So what about from Scripture? We believe, by the way, in substitutionary atonement that Jesus took the sinner's place for the purpose of reconciling us or putting us right with God. And it says it right in Scripture. Here's what we believe, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's substitution right there. And here's the reason the Bible gives. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was a purpose to fix the sin condition, to restore human beings to sinlessness and righteousness. We couldn't do it. So Christ came and took the problem upon his own shoulders to fix it, eliminate the the infection of sin, and restore humanity to sinlessness. You want to think about it this way. When when Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, did God get changed? Did God's law change? Did the condition of Adam and Eve change? Then the plan of salvation doesn't need to work on God. He's perfect and holy and righteous and always will be. Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The plan of salvation doesn't need to work on God's law. It's it's, it's, as it is. It always will be. Can't be changed or amended. The the plan of salvation has to work on sinners. We're the ones out of harmony. We have to be reconciled. We have to be restored. That's why all the metaphors of Scripture take out the stony heart, put in a fleshly one, write the law on the heart and mind. We have to be reborn. We have to uh, receive the, the mind of Christ have the heart circumcised by the Spirit. That's where the power is, where the work is in us. And then, did you hear in the quotations from the historical Adventist publications, did you hear anything that said God executed his son or God had to kill the innocent? Did you hear that? No. You didn't? Now, I'm talking about the, the, the ones that, that are being from, from 27 Fun Beliefs, the review. Yeah. Yeah, did you hear that? Yeah. This is what it's being taught today. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Listen from the Great Controversy, page 36. See if, see if this historical message is what you heard in what's actually being taken to the world. Here's what she wrote. God does not stand towards the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression. Can you say it plainer than that? Mm. 
But he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to themselves to reap that which what they have sown. Galatians 6, 8, the one who sows the carnal nature from that nature reaps destruction. This is what, where this is coming from. Wow. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God persistently resisted is at last withdrawn from the sinner, and there it, then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. Wow. So Satan doesn't have power. You reap what you Understand, this, this did not take God by surprise. God prophesied through the prophet Isaiah that this exact perversion of the gospel and distortion was going to be how Christians taught it. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he, Christ, the Lamb, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He took up our terminal sin condition in order to overcome and cure it. But we considered God was killing him. God struck him down. God had to uh, execute him. This is how it's going to be taught. God chose a cross. Yes, exactly. Jesus himself said, in John 8, 44, you belong, talking to the, the, the legalistic Jews, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And Hebrews tells us in Hebrews two fourteen, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. According to Jesus, death comes out from Satan. He's the murderer from the beginning. And according to Hebrews, the devil holds the power of death. Yet the penal legal system teaches that death comes out from God as just punishment. God is the holder of death. God is the originator of it. God must kill in order to be just. God is, let me tell you, death does not come from God. Okay. Life comes from God. Okay, that he has the power of death. Destroy him who holds the The power of death. Yes, so uh, John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, and thou hast sent. Life eternal is knowing, knowing God. God. And that Bible knowing is intimacy, connection with, not knowing about. Yes. Knowing, knowing. Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and gave a son. It's intimate knowledge, knowing and experience, knowing him as your friend and savior and surrendering your heart to him. That's what life eternal is, coming back into knowledge and knowing God. Okay, wait, I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> you have to first define what life is. Okay. Eternal life is knowing God. Okay, then what's eternal death? Not knowing God. God. Then what's Satan's power? The lies that he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. And And Satan is the father of lies. His power is the father of lies that we believe. And if we believe the lies, it breaks our connection with God, and then we will die if we are not reconciled back to God. The lies that you believe about God that keep you from knowing him and keep you in rebellion against him. Satan is the father. Remember, lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in acts of sin. This is a terminal condition. And this will we'll settle in this last quotation. Well, this is out of Desire of Ages again. Historically, what we were supposed to teach, contrast this with, with those more recent publications. This is Desire of Ages 761. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels, before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of heaven. Here's one view, that Christ's death at the cross was caused by God's enemy, Satan. Our publications are teaching it was God in justice who had to kill his son at the cross. 
He executed his son at the cross. These are not harmonious, folks. There's no meeting of the middle here. You want to know why Christ hasn't come? You want to know why we're in this delay? Because the final message of mercy that we're to take to the world has been infected with Romanism. Romanism is not about the day of church you go to, day of week you go to church. Romanism is about in what kind, how you understand God's law. Yes. And then this is Signs of the Times, November 13, 1893. We're almost done. Two quotes. You may have seen some in regard to the righteousness of Christ. You may have seen some of his righteousness, folks. But there is truth yet to be seen clearly that should be estimated by you as precious and rare jewel. You will see the law of God and interpret it, it to the people in an entirely different light from what you have done in the past. Wow. The law of God will be seen by you as revealing a God of mercy and righteousness. Amen. That's design law. The atonement made by the stupendous sacrifice will be seen by you in an altogether different light. When you reset the law to design law, all the major doctrines do not change. Sabbath still is Sabbath day, the dead still is day of the dead. The atonement, Jesus, as our uh, salvation through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ that he achieved solely and alone, and we can't add to it. All the major doctrines, the creation, the inspiration of Scripture, all the, 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 the divinity of the Godhead, all the major doctrines are the same. But your understanding of them change. That now makes sense. Yeah, it all fits. Yeah. And then the last quote, and we'll close this. The Desire of Ages, 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easy as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the mean to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing powers. So I've given you, hopefully this morning, a historical view of what the Adventist message to the world is supposed to be, calling people out of a Romanization of Christianity with imperial law, with a punishing God and legal adjustments, into worshiping a creator God who is love and whose laws are the basis for life itself. These are not, there's no meeting of these two folks. And I leave it for you to go home and study and inquire, which God do you prefer? The one who needs a mediator to plead to him to hide you from his wrath, or the one who, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Uh, it, it God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not give up his Son, but spare, did not spare his Son, but gave him up. How will he not with him give us all things? It's Roman, Romans eight thirty one. These are not reconcilable. Gracious Father in heaven, how amazing you are, our creator, God of love, God of truth, God of liberty, who sacrificed yourself in Jesus for the purpose of bringing us the truth and overcoming the power of death and destroying the infection of sin and restoring humanity back into right relationship with you. We ask now that your spirit be poured out. Take the victory of Christ. Reproduce it in us because we know that in us, we don't have the ability to fix this problem. We don't have righteousness in us inherent and by by ourselves. Only as it comes from you, reproduced in us, Lord. We pray now for this empowering, this enlightening, this transforming, that we can be your end-time witnesses because, Lord, our passion, our goal, our, our heart is to hasten the day 
that the pain, suffering, sickness, and death that we see in this world will come to an end and we can live in a world free of all sin, all suffering, all death, where all the tears are wiped away. We pray you'll come soon. Amen.